0: pray together. Father, thank you so much for the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, for who he is, for what he has accomplished on behalf of his people. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are worthy for us to set our hope upon you, that as we go through the ups and downs of this life, the trials and the tribulations, the the difficulties, the disasters, the triumphs, that we can truly set our hope upon you. That you never fail us, that you never let us go. That those whom you have drawn unto yourself and granted salvation through your sacrifice upon the cross, we are secure in you, those in whom you began a good work, you will complete that work, and we will make it to the end. And so, Father, as that song declares, we ask that you give us strength, and you give us endurance, and you give us perseverance, to day in and day out, moment by moment, to set our hope upon Jesus. There's there's no one else who is worthy of that. There's no one else who can sustain us. There's no one else who can help us in the way that Jesus does. We thank you, Lord. We commit our time now to you as we look into your word, and we just ask that you will conform us more to the image of Christ as a result of Sitting under the teaching of your word, I yes, ask your Holy Spirit works in us for your glory, for our good, in Christ's name, Amen. It's good to be back with you guys. We enjoyed our time in Colorado last week, and but it's always good to be back. Let me just say thank you to Ian and and his comrades up here. I send him texts occasionally that say. This song is a song we do very soon, pretty much just in a declarative way. And he puts it together, and we get to sing it. That song has become probably right now my favorite song that's out there. When it first came out, you can ask my kids. They would walk into any room, get in the car, and be like, again? Why are we listening to this again? Because it's so good. We set our hope upon Jesus. All right, today we are back in Titus chapter 1. And I will complete a message that I began several weeks ago in verses 5 through 9. A message that I have entitled, A Blueprint for Biblical Leadership. And, And so we'll read the text before us and then we'll work our way through the remainder of this text. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good and sensible, just, devout, self-controlled holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Edward Payson was a brilliant American pastor who served as the pastor of the Congregational Church of Portland, Maine for 20 years during the early part of the 19th century. The Encyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature states this concerning his character and his passion as a preacher. It may be truly said of Edward Payson that he labored not to please men, but God. And his pulpit thundered and lightened like another Sinai against every form of ungodliness and iniquity. In his memoir, he he recounts what he would say to a young man who was studying for the ministry. He writes, What if God should place in your hand a diamond and tell you to inscribe inscribe on it a sentence which should be read at the last day and shown there as an index of your own thoughts and feelings? What care, what caution would you exercise in this election? Now this is what God has done. He has placed you before immortal minds, more imperishable than the diamond on which you are about to inscribe. Every day and every hour by your instructions, by your spirit, or by your example, something which will remain and be exhibited, be exhibited for or against you at the judgment day. What I want you to notice from that statement is is the solemnity and the precision of which a man who would lead God's church is called to. This exemplifies the concern that God's people are to have in regard to who is leading and shepherding God's church. And this brings us back to the text that we are in the midst of studying here in chapter 1. Where Paul is instructing his son in the faith, Titus, to identify and train and set in place biblical leaders, elders, in all of the cities on the island of Crete where these churches have been established. And we find ourselves in this text studying three observations regarding Titus's objective in Crete, which provide believers a blueprint for establishing biblical leadership in the local church. And the first observation found in verse 5 that we noted last time was this, that elders, first of all, must be a plurality of men. There must be a plurality of men. The term elders in verse 5 is plural, and it is in the masculine form. In God's wisdom, a plurality of qualified leaders, protects both the leaders and the church. It protects the leader from false accusation, from pride, and from many temptations that might surface for a guy who is making decisions on his own. And it protects the church from a man who uses his appointed office as an opportunity to become a dictator and to run the church according to his own personal ambition. Another benefit that comes from having a plurality of elders is is the collective wisdom that comes from a group of spirit-filled men who are godly, meeting together and discussing the spiritual issues of the church. Because each of those men provides valuable biblical insight that is then used to inform that collective decision that has impact upon the church. God in his wisdom created the the collective wisdom of qualified men to be the means of governing his his people. How then are these men chosen to lead? What are these these men to be like? What are their characters to be like? Well, we see answers to these questions in the second observation that we began to look at last time in verses 6 through 9, and that is this, that that elders must be qualified men. They must be qualified men. We see in verses 6 through 9 that these men were to be men who were qualified in both their character and in their giftedness. As Paul begins listing the necessary qualifications for leaders of God's church, he begins with an overarching qualification that serves as an umbrella characteristic that is fleshed out by the qualities that are listed after it. And we we began to look at that last time. This is clear by the fact that that being above reproach, which is this umbrella characteristic, which is stated there in verse verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, It is repeated again in verse 7, and the placement of that particular phrase in this clause gives it prominence in this paragraph. In other words, causing it to function as this umbrella term. This term means that this man must be a genuine Christian and that this man's character keeps him free from any accusations that can actually stick and be proven as true. The elders in the church are always going to accrue accusations. It's just happened across the centuries. There's attacks from every side against God's people. But this term being above reproach means that as those accusations come, that they they don't stick. They cannot be proven as, as true. To be above reproach is to not have a sinful defect that would cause one's moral character to be called into question. To be above reproach is to be free from disqualification. To be above reproach is to be godly and and exemplary in their life and their ministry. And in the remainder of verses 6 through 9, Paul further describes what a man who has a character that is above reproach looks like by fleshing it out under two primary categories. And that's what I want us to study now. The first category involves managing his family. Managing his family. The, the, The first way that a man can be looked at, his life can be looked at and observed and evaluated, and him be deemed to be above reproach as a, as a leader of God's church, is that he is able to manage his family. Look again at verse 6 with me. It says, Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife. We'll stop there. It begins, you can see there in verse 6, In terms of managing his family, it begins with the fact that his marriage is above reproach. Now, there are several interpretations regarding this term that Paul actually only uses once, and it's here in the New Testament. I'm just going to list some of those different interpretations that godly men have had throughout the years, and then just explain to you briefly why we hold to the view that we hold to here at Countryside. The first interpretation that is given for this is that he must be married. He must be married. Well, there are several leaders in the New Testament, in God's church in the New Testament, who were not married, including Paul himself. And so to say that that this man must be married, and that's what this means, to be the husband of one wife, it doesn't necessarily fit this context. it can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily fit this context. the second interpretation is that he must not be a polygamist. well that goes without saying. <laughs> that goes without saying, and i don't think that's what paul was intending to say. here that you can have this wife and you must and the only stipulation to being an elder is that you must not marry all of these other women. that is true, but i don't think that's what paul's intention was here. A third interpretation is that he must only have one wife, kind of connected to the, the last interpretation, but, but that there's only one wife in, in terms that, that he, he has only had one wife his whole life. Again, that's true. But but I think Paul is driving at something even further here. The fourth interpretation is that he he must not be divorced and remarried. And there are several godly men who hold to this view. And, and again. There is truth in the fact that a man who who has been divorced, that there could be a blight on his character depending on the circumstances of that divorce. I don't believe that's necessarily what Paul is teaching here, though there is a lot of truth in that. The fifth interpretation, which I believe Paul is driving at here and myself along with the rest of the elders here at Countryside would hold to, is that... To be above reproach in his marriage, he must be maritally pure. He must be maritally pure. And, and as you see that, you see that how, how all of these other interpretations actually can fall under that interpretation. Right? If a man is a maritally, if he's pure in his marriage, then he's not going to be a polygamist. He's only going to have one wife. He's, he's not doing things in his life, and his Marriage to, to bring about divorce, he's going to be pure. And it seems clear in the context of what Paul is driving at, as I said, is broader than four of these interpretations, that this man must be maritally pure. He must uphold the sanctity of marriage in his life. He must be morally pure, devoted to his wife physically and mentally and emotionally. He must have a marriage that one can look up to and model theirs after. And though his marriage won't be perfect, no marriage is perfect. This side of heaven, marriages will always have their ups and downs and their struggles and their difficulties. And though it won't be perfect, it will be blameless, which is to say, It will be free from accusations that can actually stick. That if a person was to transform themselves into a fly on the wall and look at the marriage of the life of this individual, they're not going to see perfection, but what they're going to see is a model of purity within that marriage and a love that that husband and wife have for one another. That is demonstrated tangibly day in and day out. This will be a marriage that is full of joy and contentment, one that reflects the relationship between Christ and his church. This is the man's most intimate relationship. You see why Paul uses this. You see why Paul puts this out there as, as one of the primary things that a, per, that a, that a church is to look, like, look at in the life of a man who is going to be leading them. This is his most intimate relationship. Everything else in his personal life will be directed by the approach to his wife. That's why this is front and center because if you can look at a man's life and you can see his relationship with his wife with as much observation as you can see without actually being a fly on the wall in his home, then you're going to see this marriage that reflects what God intends marriage to be, where there is a a deep abiding companionship, where there is a love that each one has for one another and service that, that demonstrates that love. But not only is a, a biblical leader to be maritally pure, he must also have children who are faithful. must have children who are faithful. If you look at verse 6, you see that. So he says, he must be the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. 1 Timothy 3 gives the parallel instruction regarding this quality when it states that this man must manage his household well he must shepherd his wife and he must shepherd his children. Now, the, the debate regarding this characteristic, this one where, where Titus says very bluntly that he must have children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So this debate regarding this characteristic boils down to the meaning of the word translated believe. In the Greek, this is uh, the word pistos Is Paul saying here that elders must have children who are actually believers, which is the common use of this term in the New Testament? Or is he saying that elders must have children who are faithful, which this term can also mean? Well, let me just say this, that faithful men fall on both sides of this interpretation. Very faithful men. In fact, John MacArthur holds the view that elders' children must be professing believers. If he is going to be an elder, his children must be professing believers. On the other hand, Tom Pennington, who you know quite well, and the rest of us elders here at Countryside hold to the view that this word in this context means faithful. Let me just give you a few of these primary reasons that we hold to this Greek word meaning faithful here in this text. First, I would say that it goes back to the instruction given to Timothy in the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3. It's worth looking at that for just a quick second. 1 Timothy 3. If you look at verse 4, again, a parallel passage to what we're seeing in Titus chapter 1. He says to Timothy concerning this man who is going to lead God's church, he must be one who manages his own household well. And then he defines that further. Keeping his children under control with all dignity. In this passage, in 1 Timothy 3, the emphasis that Paul is highlighting is that an elder's child must be under control. That word is speaking of, of their outward behavior that is managed by faithful discipline. It's something that can be observed. You can look at, a, at an elder's home, you can see his children, and you can either determine those people are wild and out of control, or they're somewhat managed and somewhat disciplined. And they obey their parents when they're instructed. We know this because it is in the context of an elder's family in both of these texts. And it's in the context of this family being evaluated by looking at how his children respond to him to see if he has the capacity then to manage the entire flock of people. right? And that's what Paul says to Timothy in that uh, parenthetical statement in verse 5. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... Here's the question. How will he take care of the church of God? So this elder is under the evaluation of the church as they perceive his life and they're looking at his family and say, well, if he can't keep those guys under control, how in the world is he going to manage the entire flock that God has entrusted to him? That's that's the evaluation process. That's the first reason why we think this means faithful. Another reason, Reason why we believe pistos means faithful in Titus one six is because of what Paul says after he says that children must be faithful, which further qualifies what he means, and that is they are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Believe or faithful is is connected by that following statement to their behavior. To not be accused of of dissipation is is to not have a pattern of life that wastes resources. In other words, they are not open to the charge of of reckless extravagance. Dissipation can be further defined as, as someone who is insubordinate or someone who is characterized by defying authority. In other words, they are not known for being wild, defiant children. That's what Paul is saying. And they will not be known for rebellion. This this word is is not referring to occasional disobedience. Again, we are all in the flesh in this life, on this earth. We will all struggle with sin in in various ways, at various seasons. It is not referring to occasional disobedience that is regularly disciplined and corrected. But rather, this word rebellion is is referring to a deep-seated rebellion. That is an ongoing pattern of outward disobedience. Listen, Paul's point is that the man who will lead God's church will know how to lead, organize, and shepherd his own children well first. One of my professors from seminary said this happens by loving them. By caring for them, by disciplining them, by encouraging them, by praying for them, by affirming them, by being an example to them, and by holding them accountable. That a man who is doing that with his children, he is loving them in that way. That those children lead disciplined lives. In the sense that they are respecting the authority of their parents. You see, the primary test of leadership is the home. It's in the home. And I will tell you personally that that is very sobering. That that is very sobering. That that a man who is put in the position of an elder, if he gives any thought to that whatsoever, it is going to to cause him to be very sober-minded about this quality. Because that's the desire of every man who wants to lead God's church. If he has that kind of capacity, then he is going to have the desire to see that happen with his family first. You all probably know examples of families that that are in disarray, where the husband at some point or the father at some point was, was in leadership in the church. I, I'm, I'm personally acquainted with some of that. I know what that looks like. And the, and the, the outward effect that that has then on the, the people of God. As they look at the life of this man, as they entrust themselves to his leadership, And then all of a sudden, they look at his life and it's really a mess in many ways. So let me just encourage you, as those who belong to a faithful church where we, we want to do our absolute best to be these men and to continue to raise up men who are this to lead God's church, that that you pray for your leaders. Because as I said, they're, they're not free from accusation. And they're definitely not free from temptation. They need the help of the Spirit of God to enable them to continue to love Christ more and to grow in their love for their families and in their love for Christ's church. And God uses the prayers of his saints to, to powerfully work in the lives of those whom he has called to lead God's church. So the primary test of leadership begins in the home, but there's a second category then. Which Paul uses to flesh out what it means for God's man to be above reproach. And that involves, secondly, managing God's family. He first must be able to manage his home. But secondly, he must be able to manage God's family. Look at verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. This is where he repeats that overarching qualification. To be above reproach. To highlight its prominence in this paragraph. He says, for the overseer, he uses a, uh, an alternate word for um, a word that can be translated elder as well. For the overseer must be above reproaches God's steward. Now, this term overseer here is, is used to emphasize that elders are the ones who are responsible for safeguarding the church, for making sure that, that the church that, that things are done the right way in the church. And what I mean by that is, is the way that God has prescribed. That we worship God how he has directed in the scriptures. That we shepherd people as he has directed in the scriptures. That we disciple people. That we evangelize in the way that he has called us to. And So they are responsible for safeguarding the church. For making sure things are done in the right way. And notice this. It says in verse 7. For the overseer must. They must be a certain way. And that is that they... It is absolutely necessary for each elder to be above reproach as God's steward. This is not up for debate. This is not something that can be, you know, it doesn't have sway to it. Uh, this is something that is absolutely necessary. That's what's communicated by that word must. And he says that he must be above reproach, above reproach. if as he is going to be God's steward. That term steward here means to be entrusted with management in transcendent matters. To be entrusted with management in transcendent matters. He is to be a manager of God's household. The administrator of God's estate, so to speak. Now this speaks of his ability to administrate the ministry and to shepherd the people. And notice this this steward is, is God's steward. You see that, that he must be above reproach as God's steward. He belongs to God. He is accountable to God. This isn't a self made steward. He rises up and places himself in a place of leadership. This is God's steward who he puts in place by his means to then oversee and shepherd the flock. this brings about godly fear and sobriety when approaching this task. I rarely go... A day without thinking about the reality that I belong to God. And I'm accountable to God. And so the things that I do in terms of leading and shepherding my own family, the church, will be evaluated by God. And that's what Paul is intending to communicate by saying that he is God's steward. Paul then expounds on what it means to be above reproach as God's steward by listing five qualities that must not characterize God's steward, followed by seven qualities that are to characterize Him. And we're going to move through these in in pretty rapid-fire succession like Paul does because, again, I want us to achieve the result of getting through this text today. Note, first of all, that God's steward must not be, as he says there in verse 7, self-willed. Self-willed. That is to say that he must not be stubborn or arrogant. What does that look like in the context of ministry? He He must not seek to get his own way, including not trying to manipulate a situation to point the decision in his direction. I think all of us, I think people in general understand the art of manipulation in some way. Right? You're in a stage in life, and maybe maybe less so now, but, but more so maybe when you were under your parents' you know, full authority or high schoolers, and there was something you wanted to happen in your, in your life, and so you would shift things to manipulate their decision just a little bit. Like you want this to happen, so... I'm going to say this a certain way and I'm going to do this a certain way and if I do those things I can do that without coming across like I'm being manipulative you know what I mean you do what I mean I know you do manipulating a situation elders can do that in the context of a plurality of men Is they, they can have their own agenda and, and it might be good and I'm not saying this just in that they want some derogatory thing, some bad thing to happen, but it might be a good thing. But as they sit down and there's a there's this collective conversation and then there's this collective decision, they see that it's not going their direction. And so they might say something or, or do something that causes those things to be swayed. No, an elder doesn't do that. He's not self-willed. This also means that he must not be overbearing in his leadership style. Known as one who makes demands. Now, if i was just going to be very personal with you right here, as I look at that qualification, as I had to come to grips with all of these in my life, and where was I at in regards to these things, and be able to answer to the elder board and say, I mean, I I think I'm there. This is a big one for me. As I... Look at how I conduct my life. It's simple for me sometimes to say this, do this. An elder watches that and he refrains from doing that. His leadership style is not making demands. It's not, not putting unnecessarily, unnecessary pressure on a person to, to get their way. You see, elders need to be men of conviction. This isn't talking about that. But they must make sure that they don't cross the line and become self important and arrogant. And it's so easy for that to happen. And so an elder must guard against that. He can't be this type of man. Second, Paul says he must not be quick tempered. He must not be quick tempered. He is not to have a short fuse. He is to be known as one who is patient and and long-suffering. Being quick-tempered also has the idea of being easily irritated and frustrated. One who leads God's people is not to be a hothead. It's not to be someone with a, a short fuse, someone who blows a gasket. Third, Paul says that he must not be addicted to wine. Must not be addicted to wine. This exact wording is actually found in 1 Timothy 3 as well. As That is a parallel passage. Paul states these same qualifications but he uses different words. This particular wording is, is carried over from even 1 Timothy 3. It's the same wording. What's the principle? Well, the principle is that this man who leads God's church is not to be marked by having a thirst for alcohol. Abstinence from From alcohol is not commanded in scripture. We know that. But we do know that drunkenness certainly is. Abstinence is also not demanded for God's steward. He's not saying that in this text. But I will say this. That there is wisdom in it. With regard to being above reproach. Dr. Clawson. He comes out here often. He teaches various things. He'll be at our conference again this year. One of my favorite profs in seminary gave a class that a lot of people don't like because of the way it's structured, but it was the ordination prep class. And and he went through that class and walked through 1 Timothy 3 for an entire semester. I, at that point in my life, I walked out of every class period thinking, I don't think I'm in the right place and I may not even be a Christian. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how I felt like coming out of those things. And, and God was kind to to continue to, to work on my heart and my life and help me those things. But, but he gave this list that I thought was helpful to the benefits of abstinence for those who would lead God's church. And I'm just going to list these for you. Again, these are not thou shalt or thou shalt nots. They were just benefits of wisdom that, that he, he gave us, and I, I thought they were helpful. First of all, alcohol alcohol is potentially addictive, harmful, and dangerous. Secondly, alcohol is is unnecessary. It's not a staple that you have to have in your life. At times, the line between sobriety and drunkenness is fuzzy. Fourth, drunkenness is strongly condemned in the scriptures in Galatians 5.21. We see an example of it. Timothy, Paul's disciple, that he abstained because Paul was even saying... You should drink a little wine for your stomach. But Paul, but, but Timothy was committed to abstinence. The next one would be consumption of alcohol can be a stumbling block. We know that from Romans 14. Abstinence provides an opportunity for witness. As you're in the midst of the, the world, as a leader of God's church, and you might find yourself in some sort of situation where that becomes an, an ability to to provide a witness in the midst of a group of people who don't hold to that. Another benefit would, is that abstinence safeguards the family and its next generation as there are studies after studies of people who are drunk, they're drunkards, and their family follows in that footsteps. I think the last one is a really helpful one. And that is this, that abstinence allows God's man to to preach, pray, and counsel or lead a meeting at any time. Like there's never a time. If something happens, if, if if, if there is a tragic situation and the pastor needs to be involved or an elder needs to be involved in that situation. If he is committed to abstinence, he's going to be able to respond to that immediately. Again, I think it's just a helpful list to consider. The Bible is not... Saying, Thou shalt be abstinent. But I do think there's wisdom for for those who lead God's church to consider these things. Paul continues on, fourth in the text. He says that he must not be, God's man must not be pugnacious. Pugnacious, an interesting word. This word is, is focused on the elder's emotions, he must not be violent. He must not be known as a, a striker or a bully. Striker was not a word we use common. That's what I mean by that. <laughs> right. he, he is not to be known as one who is always looking for a fight. Whether that be at home, with co-workers, with critics, or so common in today's society online. An elder is not to be known for someone who is always looking for a fight with somebody. Fifth, he must not be fond of sordid gain. Literally, Literally, he is not to be a lover of silver. He is not to be fond of dishonest gain. That is, looking for ways to make money using the ministry in a dishonest or inappropriate way. 1 Timothy 6 tells us that the love of money, again the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evil. This text is not forbidding elders to have money, but rather it is forbidding elders to love money. So how does loving money manifest itself in the life of an elder and in the lives of believers in general? I think this is helpful. Again, another one of these lists. I credit to Dr. Clausen. These are a list of sins that are driven by a love of money. Greed. Posturing in ministry for, for material gain. Envy. Wanting for yourself what others in your church have. Pride. Convincing yourself that you deserve better. Materialism. Preoccupation with the the thoughts of this world's riches. A lack of faith, believing that you must determine the quality of your future. Lust, allurement by the advertising and material narrative of the world. You must have this, you must have this if you're going to be successful. Discontentment, constant dissatisfaction with your present material condition. prejudicial. A person who loves money can be prejudicial. How? Well, they give preferential treatment to to the rich. Paul tells Timothy, don't do that. All of those sins stem or I should say kind of give us a perspective on what it means to love money. And just for us collectively as a group and individuals and thinking about that in our own hearts and lives, it's helpful to walk through that and to think about those things. Am I greedy? Am I envious? Do I think I deserve better? Am I entitled? Am I preoccupied with the world's riches? That can be easy to do. Right, we are bombarded with the world's riches and particularly here where we live and, and, and the, the, the way of life that God has graciously given to us, it can be easy to become preoccupied with the world's system of riches. Being allured by the narrative of this world, being discontent, that's honestly, if you're going to like put your finger on one of these things, that kind of I think can help summarize the rest, it's that idea of discontentment. Right? If you can look at your life and say, I'm discontent. I'm discontent with the amount of money I'm making. I'm discontent with maybe the amount of money I'm going to make. I'm discontent with this. Then there's a love of money that's rooted in your heart. For the elder, this must not be. He must be content with what God has given him, with the stewardship of his finances, and with the stewardship of the people that God gives him. Well, Paul continues the list of qualities. Now emphasizing, he's going to switch here in... Uh, verse eight to emphasize the positive characteristics which must must mark a leader of God's church. First of all, you see in verse eight that he must be hospitable. Literally, this word means one must care for strangers. That's the that's the way this word is defined. This involves having a home that is open and being willing to sacrifice resources to minister to others. I heard this once. I don't know where I heard it, but the elder's home is his second pulpit. That's interesting to think about. That you go around the, this church and you see these kinds of pulpits. By the way, I had the first one. But the, these kinds of pulpits that are in all the Sunday school rooms and different things around where guys are teaching week in, week out. Paul is saying that In the way that he is hospitable in his life, his home functions as a second pulpit, a second opportunity to declare God's truth to people. Why? Because he's open to having people in there. This goes back to the necessary qualification of having a family that is well-managed. A guy who doesn't have a family that's well-managed isn't going to be super excited about having other people in his home. An elder must be quick to open his home to the people he is shepherding. This, this characteristic is not just given to elders, though. As actually, as all of these are found in other portions of Scripture dealing with the church as a whole, but this one in particular is given to Christians in general that as Christians, we must be identified as people who are hospitable. Second, he must be loving what is good, Paul says. This Greek word is used only here in the New Testament. and And it has the idea of being passionate about seeing good flourish in the church. He is passionate about seeing good flourish in the church. He he is passionate about seeing good works of God being done. So by helping to lead those things to happen, by encouraging people who are doing those things. But he is passionate about seeing God's church continue to do good in the world. Third, he must be sensible, Paul says. To be sensible is to be one who who avoids extremes. It is to be able to make wise decisions, decisions that are right for the church and not just for him personally. So there are times that an elder has to make a decision for his family. Again, first and foremost, that is who he is. Who God has given him. But he can't always excuse things or always sway decisions to benefit him personally. He is he is sensible. Uh, To be sensible is to fight against being self seeking. He is seeking the good of the church. He is seeking the good of the of the elder board. He's not just caught up in his own agenda. Fourth, it says he must be just. He must be just. He, he does what is right and fair. He, he seeks to be righteous as God is righteous. Listen, he desires to reflect the character of God and the way that he lives righteously in his justice. Just as he does with the fifth quality is that he must be, he must be devout. That is, he, he seeks to live a holy life as a reflection of the holy God that he serves. He seeks to keep himself from the things which God hates. He, he does whatever is necessary to, to champion holiness in his own personal life and in the life of the people that he oversees. So he exemplifies holiness because he's committed, it, committed to it in his own life. He preaches holiness because God says we shall be holy as he is holy. He counsels people toward holiness. He encourages holiness in the church by calling out sin. That causes holiness to lack in the church. Sixth, he must be self-controlled. To be self-controlled is literally, to quote the leading Greek lexicon, to restrain one's emotions or desires or impulses, to restrain one's emotions, desires, or or impulses. This is to be disciplined. This is to have a heart of of integrity. One who is self-controlled is marked by the fact that they keep short accounts with God in regard to their personal sin. Elders must never let personal sin get a grip on their lives. They must control it they must restrain those desires and they must deal with that sin at a heart level seventh he must be marked as one who holds fast to the faithful word you see that in verse nine he holds fast fast to the faithful word he must be a man who is devoted to the word of god He must hold fast to the gospel message itself. He must be committed to sound doctrine as a whole. He can't be wishy-washy in his convictions. Every elder that he's evaluated and eventually put before the congregation and uh, given a time of testing and then affirmed by the rest of the elder board, he goes through a significant evaluation and exam before the rest of the board. And one of the primary things that's examined in this man's life is his ability to, first of all, understand, and secondly, to articulate sound doctrine. And so we walk through the ten areas of systematic theology after, after he has memorized this section from Genesis to Revelation of all of the key aspects of the Bible. And after that's regurgitated, he's then questioned for For a long period of time regarding these areas of systematic theology. Why? Because he must be committed to sound doctrine. I've been a part of churches. And I've been to many churches where the leadership just does not have this commitment. They have faithful men who love Christ, who they want to put in these positions because they need to get people in these positions. But they do not have men who are sound in their theology. It's very important that he must hold fast to the faithful word. He must not be given to the doctrine of the day, but rather he must be a man who is devoted to the correct understanding of the word of God. He knows how to interpret the scriptures and he knows how to apply the scriptures to his life and to his people is to be a, a faithful steward of God's people. And to be this faithful steward, an elder, must be above reproach in all of these areas. And I think Gene Getz summed up the importance of these qualifications very well when he wrote this. He said, Someone has said that more is learned from what is caught than, that is, than what is taught. Though it is certainly important to communicate God's word didactically, it's what people see in our lives that gives weight to our words. That is why the qualifications for elders are so important. If we are to teach the Word of God effectively, we must simultaneous, simultaneously live the Word of God. Now, I think that's a good summation of the importance of these character qualities that Paul gives to Titus as he establishes leadership in the church. And this is why I'm rushing, because this leads us to a third observation. That we see in this text. And this one's fast. It's fast. We'll just touch on it briefly. It provides believers with this, this blueprint. A further blueprint for establishing church leadership. And that is this. That elders must be competent men. They must be competent men. You see the second half of verse 9 flows out of the reality that a man must be devoted to the word of God as seen in the first half of the verse. As he says in verse 9, holding fast to the faithful word. That's That's this quality. Which is in accordance with the teaching, so that, there's the purpose statement, so that what? So that he is able to teach. He's able to teach. And this is the primary distinction between elders and deacons. Deacons are given the same character qualities that, that must reflect their lives. But this is the this gifting of being able to teach is only required for. Elders. Elders must be competent to teach the truth of the Word of God in such a way, Paul tells us, as that he is able to exhort the people in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict sound doctrine. To exhort in sound doctrine is the, is the po- positive advance of the truth, which happens through appeals and encouragements grounded in the Scriptures. In other words, he is able to argue the truth of a text and lovingly back his people into a corner, forcing them to come to grips with the truth that is being taught. That's what preaching is on a weekly basis. That's why there's exhortation in preaching. That's why we try to avoid just lecturing. If it's just a a data dump of information, it's missing that appeal of, of calling then for the people to... Yes, hear that information, but then respond to that truth. As Lloyd-Jones said, preaching is logic on fire. And that fire involves exhorting people to, to grab a hold of the truth that was just communicated to them. Elders are able to do that. To refute those who contradict is to give an apologetic defense of the truth by the truth. Refuting has the idea of of bringing conviction. It has the idea of convincing someone of of wrong thinking and clearly articulating the truth that should replace that wrong thinking. So as a person has this wrong idea, this wrong view of God or, or the church or the Bible or whatever it may be of salvation, an elder is able to to hit that point of contradiction with the truth of the scriptures. And that truth then takes that contradiction and turns it on its head and says, this is why the Bible says this. They're able to refute sound, uh, refute um, those who contradict. And it's important because there are a lot of People who have a lot of bad theology who are trying to contradict what God has taught us in his word. And so the elder as an overseer, as Paul says there in verse 7, as he safeguards the church, he must be able to contradict those who bring false doctrine to bear on the people that he shepherds, but also from the things that the people begin to believe themselves that might be contrary to the word of God. He has the ability to bring conviction and to replace that wrong thinking with truth. Let me give you one final list that helps clarify what it means to be able to teach. A person who is able to teach has a, has a knowledge of the whole counsel of God. They understand the storyline from Genesis to Revelation. They understand all the key components of every book of the Bible. They have this full overarching knowledge of the whole council of God. And they can go to any text and they can prepare that text and they can then preach that text to the people. There's no text that's on, off limits. They have an ability to discern error. So as they hear the different interpretations of the day of various things, they're able then to discern error and then as it goes back to even refuting this, this contradiction, they're able to then bring truth to that. They have a readiness And a desire to teach. A person who is gifted to teach has a readiness and a desire to teach. Because their well is continuing to grow in the Word of God. And they have the the tools, the ability to, to exegete a text and to work through it. And then to present it. They're ready and they're willing. They have a desire to do it. They have an ability to communicate successfully. So those who listen to the person who is gifted to teach... They are instructed, they are encouraged, they are exhorted, they are convicted. Those things happen in the course of the ministry of the man who is able to teach. They have an ability to prepare disciple teachers. They can teach others what it means to communicate the truth. And this is an important one, an application of what has been learned to one's life. It goes back to that one who is going to teach the truth must exemplify the truth. Friends, God has clearly laid out the blueprint for how leadership is to be established in the church. Clearly. Elders must be a plurality of men. Elders must be qualified men. Elders must be competent men. Titus was to appoint these types of men in all the churches in Crete for the purpose of training the believers of Crete. Don't miss this because this is where we're going to go from here. Of training these believers of Crete to be salt and light in the dark pagan culture in which they existed. And we'll discover more about that next time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your clear truth that you have presented in your word. We don't have to wonder how church leadership is to function and who church leaders are to be. You have made that clear. Father, as believers, help us just not to see that as required for for leaders, though it is absolutely essential for those who lead God's church. But may these qualities bring conviction in our own hearts and lives. May we be encouraged in those things that we are doing in a way that pleases you. May we be convicted about those things that we need to work on. And God, in your kindness, in your grace, by your Spirit, will you continue to conform us to Christ? He's the master teacher. He's the one that we look at and say, that's who I want to be like. And that only happens by your Spirit working in and through us through the Scriptures to bring us to that point. So we ask you to do that. And may these students, Father, as they are here for this time, May they enjoy being in in a church that is committed to these things. And as they move forth one day, maybe moving from these walls and from this church to other places, may they be committed to being a part of churches that are committed to having biblical leaders. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Christ in his name. Amen. Amen.